Well, I think we're going to be small in class today. I'm changing what I was going to do. So we will have one more class on the chapter 8. Uh, the reason I'm changing is to give an overview and a discussion with my wife. She had struggle understanding what I was trying to say about the flesh. And I thought, well, maybe others might have it too. <laughs> so I'm just going to go over and ask you for anything that I've said. Uh, I think I put too much detail in sometimes and need to get rid of it. Uh, but anyway, I thought we would just do a summary and any questions that you have, we can talk together and see what we can do. So, it's a summary of Romans 1 through 7. We'll pick up life in the Spirit next Sunday. That I just couldn't leave out. In fact, I had prepared for that, and then I had the discussion with my wife, and I had to make a quick change. <laughs> so, uh, here's where we are. Chapter 1, of course, is no difficulty. Actually, you could take it into chapter 3. Uh, I dealt with it in three possible ways. There's the, all men are sinners. You come to the end of three, there's no question about that for Paul. Uh, there's the natural man who knows very, very little, which you have from 18, the end of chapter 1, the 18 down to 32. He's the man who has received very little things that God wants and uh, has rejected God too, and so we talked about that. There's the moral man, picks up again. In mainly in the latter part of chapter 2. The moral man is the Jew. It could be the whole section there as, as the moral man who says to you, don't do this when I do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, so he talks about this guy. He's guilty too, just because. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and if you rely on the law and boast in God, in verse 17, if you know the will and approve of it, and what is superior, because if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light of those who are dark, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, and this is kind of interesting, he's raising a question here, do you teach yourself? And Greek says, yeah, you do, you suppose that you do. Uh, and then he goes on to make accusations, uh, uh, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Yes, you do. Do you say that people should commit should not commit adultery? And you do it. And you abhor idols. And you rob temples. And on and on he goes. And he comes down to circumcision, has value, if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you are not circumcised, and so on that it goes. And he concludes with that. Then it goes into chapter Three, I usually had all three together to deal with it, but he deals with God's faithfulness in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he's really talking about what then is the value of being a Jew, if you know. We, don't, we have some right, and he'll pick this up again. You've got to remember, most of what Paul is doing is a discussion with Jewish thought and his new. We'll mention this a little bit later. That must have been a diff, very... Radical. In fact, it was radical change for Jewish people to hear that the law is not good. And we'll pick that up. It's not that the law is not good, it's the way it's used. And then he ends in chapter 3. Uh, what then shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We've already made the charge against the Jews in general. All alike are under the power of sin. And on he goes with this. And then he picks up. So what I wanted to say here is all of us should have 
for ourselves some definition of sin. What do we mean by sin as we live out our Christian life? There are two, just to summarize it, there are two primary views. Sin is seen as a failure. Sin is a failure. That leads a failure to, to do, that is, and it results in disobedience. If failure to follow, maybe we can say it's a failure to do God's law. And if you have reformed and so forth, sin is a failure to do whether purposefully or accidentally against God's law, you've sinned. I suggested you it might also be a failure to trust. You don't need to have this one, but this is my way of helps me. It's a failure. To, the word for disobedience is a word not to listen. You don't listen to what God is saying to you. Therefore, you don't trust him. The original sin of Adam, I think, was not only a disobedience of God's law, but it, what promoted this was a failure to believe that what God said was true. So I tend to go that way because it helps me as I go down the road. It helps me a little bit to put some things together for myself. Uh, there's always some alternative view or an alternative thing that comes in that I want to do and God wants me to do. It's in that tension, it seems to me, that trust must work. In that. Anyway, that's what we get here. Sin is it. Everybody has it. Everybody experiences it. And you disobey God's law, whether actively or passively. That is, is unless you're a good Methodist and they're all... Uh, if you accidentally do it, then it's not really a sin. So, but you don't need to take his way. But then you come down in the middle of chapter 2 when he picks up righteousness. A tremendous section in, in chapter 3, rather, verses 21 down to 20, really down to 26. But now, well, let's go back up. 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That is a very radical break with Judaism. God gave the law to Israel as his people, as a special, special gift to them that marked them as the people of God. To stay in the covenant promises, they need to keep the law. The law is an act of grace to God. We got it. You don't, you Gentiles. You just live like heathen. <laughs> and they often use the word for you, for them. Ignorant, foolish people. They do not know how to live moral lives. Well, I'm telling you, it doesn't work. That comes in even in chapter 6. This idea where Paul again wants to, to make the same, same idea again, if I can. Well, I'm in chapter 5. No wonder. Uh, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says. God forbid, or may it never be the case. Uh, sin has the stench of death about it. Well, we're pretty good guys if you keep the law. Well, but a great passage in chapter 3. 
And then we'll get to another game. Now, apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely through his grace. That verse 24 and 25. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And then if you come down to verse 22, well, even after that, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. How do you take this word righteous to show himself righteous? We have this at the end of uh, 25. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. In the New International, it says justice. Huh? In the New International, it says justice. Is that the same? Yeah, the Greek word has both righteousness and justice, yeah. Or to be just. Would it make any difference to you if we took righteousness in the broader sense as he will be? He did it to demonstrate his faithfulness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies the one who has faith in God. I suppose the argument could be made there that if he was truly a perfect, just, and righteous God, that he couldn't have looked over the previously committed sins as he did. Yeah. He would have had to have dealt with that at the, at the time, at the moment. Yeah, and I think that's sort of what he means uh, here. So as to be just and what I promised you that you will have new faith, yeah, new life in Christ. And yet you do things that are wrong, but you still, I, I will be faithful to you. And we need to hang on to that. And that's what picks up faith in chapter 4. And he now begins to talk about it in terms of Abraham. And why Abraham? Abraham is the father of Israel and the father of those who believe. Well, if I'm a Jew, I say, well, yeah, he is my father. But wasn't he circumcised? Didn't he have to be circumcised? And so Paul read, was he, circum was he justified before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Because circumcised was a sign of belonging to God's promise. So, what shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, verse 1, was forefather according to the flesh discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for his righteousness. Now, the one who works, wages are credited to him as a gift. Not as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Faith seems to be very, very important. What is it? Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Okay. <laughs> Romans. I mean Hebrews, I'm sorry. 
How would you define faith without saying trust? That's just a synonym of faith, I suppose. You trust in God. There's a one, one that I've laughed about a few times, but if you read that missionary biography, Brushko, about introducing the concept of faith to the South American tribes that didn't have any language, and the definition they gave was hanging your hammock high in the tree of God. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Isn't that it? is good. <laughs> Going out on a limb, we would say. Yeah. <laughs> Do you make a difference between faith and reason? Is there any association between faith and reason? I have another quote for you. Francis Ridley Havergal says, Reason unstrings the harp to discover where the music dwells. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. And faith, you know, basically launches a symphony, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. I think reason, I think reason is based on what we see. And, you know, like what Al said in Hebrews 11 there, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's things that we haven't yet seen, but we know to be true based on God's promise. Whereas, like I say, that's not always reasonable to think that way. Look at our well, circumstances. reason has been a part of our Western culture going all the way back to the 4th century of Augustine, but most clearly in Descartes, who says that the human person is of a rational substance and so we believed for many years that that, by reason, and that began what is known today as the modern period. We're now in the postmodern period. The modern period. By our reason, which produced, helped to produce a lot of scientific experiments and scientific things. So by reason, we can do everything that we don't need really God. Faith has to be, has to have something that is based on. It has to be has to have faith in something stable and, and the faithfulness of God is a reason for us to have faith in Him. So it has to be, faith has to be on something that's substantial. And that could be somewhat regarded as reason. Was it Andy Simpson said he was a rational mystic? Yeah. So he, it's the foundation of reason. It's not blind faith. Yeah. Tozer, to Tozer says the same thing. Maybe kind of it's Tozer. Yeah, well, I'm sure he got it too. What if you, somebody said to you, faith is a reasonable commitment? To the God of Holy Spirit, to the God of Holy Scripture who offers uh, salvation through Jesus Christ. This Tracy said, not a rational one, but there's a reason. There's some reason for making it. I just don't make a Kierkegaardian leap in faith out into the nothingness. I do have some reason. It may not be adequate. And I think the mystic idea is very good here. Yeah. The prophets and Paul always referred back to the faithfulness of God and, and, and history of what he'd done for his people. Sure. So they weren't they weren't having a sublime faith because they were they were talking about how he had been faithful and things that he had done for his people and so they they were 
their faith was in him who had proven himself to them. Yeah, and then many times they doubt and he struggled where he was when he made a promise and didn't quite seem that he was doing what they wanted him to do. So, along with sin, I think we need to have some understanding of what we want to do by faith at this point. That's chapter 4. And in there you have a couple definitions or understandings of faith. If you mark your Bibles, it might be interesting for Abraham. In uh, verse 7, he says, at the end it says, And he believed, and here it is, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into being that were not. That's why he hung in there about he will have a child. And then later, down in 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. <laughs> it's interesting. I listened to a little bit of speak preacher this morning, and he said, working on this same thing in the context of hope. And he was 80 years old. That's, I think he was 90. But of course, <laughs> he couldn't hear me. <laughs> and then down in 21, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. I think this is two standard things about faith that we find in Abraham. Chapter 5, 6, 7, and indeed 8 form a unit here, form a unified block here. Chapter 5 begins with the fact that you do belong to God. And here again I want to put Paul's dichotomy. He has constantly working on this all the way through. These two kind of dichotomies are different. For here is Adam, sin, and so forth. Over here is Christ, life, justification, and so on. These are two realms, at least I take them, because he uses the word realm, the word that he used for realms often is the same one they use for lord or king. So there are two realms of authority. And so he picks it up. If you belong here, there are certain benefits that are yours. And he starts in Romans 5 by listing them. We have peace with God. We have access into his grace in which we now stand. We hope in the glory of God. We can stand stern in, in sufferings. And then in verse 5, And hope that does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Hope, it's an interesting concept. It runs throughout the Bible. Because this promise over here has not been fulfilled yet. And there are sufferings and hardships and difficulties. I need to have some reason for my faith and hoping in the midst of suffering, it seems to me. It's the same thing to offer forgiveness to someone or to something. There are many you can give. But the hope is that God's love is secure for me, even when things are not going as I want. Hope remains because God, I know, loves me and he will keep his promise for he has been faithful to us. 
And then he turns to the origin of sin. In verse 12, all the way down, really to uh, verse 19. And just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came upon all people because all people had sinned. I take, you, what do you think about the idea? I take the consequence of sin as death. The wages of sin is death. It's consequences of death. Through one man, sin entered the world. And the consequence of sin is death. Now, one of the folks who's not here today asked me a question that I had not dealt with at that time. And that's back up in verse 14. Or really, it probably should go to 13 and 14. 13. To be sure, sin was in the world. Excuse me. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone on account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. And yes, we were talking about if sin is if sin is seen in a corporate sense, from Adam to all, or in Paul's sense, to the many. We are all sinners because of Adam. Raises the question, what about children? Are children guilty sinners? Both evangelists say yes. Lutheran, I think all of us would say yes. But they do something to take care of it, which we do not do. They baptize to cover original sin from Adam, and they cannot make that choice. So essentially, if I can give you the Lutheran view, Lutherans believe that the parents say, in the act of baptism, makes this forgiveness of the child, what's my old Lutheran professor said, efficacious. <laughs> <laughs> I can still see old Dr. Price. <laughs> we had a wonderful discussion in my Luther graduate class at Luther. And after we finished, he was so happy that this seminar class was just going back and forth. I was the only non-Lutheran. And so then he said to me, Mr. Alexander, I want you to know, I may have told you this, the sacrament is efficacious regardless of the faith of the recipient. <laughs> I did not respond to him, but <laughs> well, if you go back to circumcision, yeah. that baby was circumcised at eight days old mm -hmm. and did have no uh, reason to consent or to reject. Mm -hmm. It was forced on him. Yes, but that was again. I, they might say it. You might say, but that's what God decided to do. Yeah, I realize. Yeah, I know you do. Uh, so. This baptism is an act of deciding. So what happened to the girls? They were, they were lost. He got a free ride. <laughs> were they not part of the covenant? Why, did I say man or, men or something? They're probably covered by the parents. Yeah. Oh, the circumcision. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they hardly have circumcision. 
Well, I don't know what you do. <clears throat> Children do experience death. <clears throat> so in some sense, they're guilty. And I tried to suggest to you, judgment is imputed on two levels. Corporate. I don't think we can escape Paul's reference of the one and the many. But it's also, there's this very strong element in the New Testament on personal accountability. So I'd like to think that a child, whomever, is not really held guilty before God until they personally understand and acknowledge and do something they know is wrong in the sight of what God wants them to do. Until that time. We don't know where that time is. It'll vary for children. I'm not pressing this. This is just my own personal way of looking at it. Many, many sections in the New Testament that you will stand before God that is coming and will give an account for the things that you have done. Now, that end of chapter 5 introduces us to chapter 6, verses 20 and particularly 21. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where the sin increased, grace increased all the more. Okay. Where <laughs> sin, and where sin goes, sin it wants to be the sin wants to reign, to be in control. Grace is its counterbalance. Where grace reigns all the more. That raises a question if I'm a Jew, or even if I'm a Christian. Well, maybe we should sin more in order that grace may have opportunity to express itself. That's our typical reading of Westerners. A Jew would not see it that way. He would see it slightly different, but come to the same conclusion. Grace is God's love toward us. Sin is, of course, contrary to God. What God has done to overcome sin is given us the law. The law is God's means for overcoming sinful habits. And I suppose if we could keep it, it would do that. But look how radical Paul is. You got it wrong. Sin is not on the side of grace. A law is not on the side of grace. It's on the side of sin. So, boys, huh? that's what I'm telling you. Now, if I'm a Jew, I'd say, whoa, 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 what do you say? That's not true. But if it is, if you're right, why not do this so that we can get more of this and follow the law? They might have seen it differently. But this is a, a, a remarkable passage. Paul goes on to say, may it never be the case, your English says, by no means, we who have died to sin, how can we live it any longer? And now he gives you a rationale. For don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And then he gives three other kind of synonym, synonym relationships. 
Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live in life. And then we've been united with him uh, in his resurrection. We know that these things will happen for us. So if I'm over here, I am under the grace of God. I had a big discussion with a Roman Catholic pastor. And he said to me, uh, this was when I was in Hong Kong, came out to our little island to rest and to relax, and came up to the seminary. We were talking, he says, what, is, what are you guys' definition of grace? I'd never been asked that before. Well, grace is very important to us. Because grace is the power of God's love that enables us to do what God wants us to do. For us, grace is an act of God in Jesus Christ. And if we have been baptized into Christ, united with Christ, and so on, we belong here, not here. But that's going to raise questions too. Grace is an action of God, not required by anything in the object, but only out of his own innermost being. I want you to think about a question that came into my thought this when I was rereading and thinking. If I were God, and I had to make a plan to save all of you, I surely wouldn't do the one he had. I mean, no one who is deity in any world would sort of put themselves in a lower state of humility, of being rejected by its own creatures. God did that. No lawyer would write that contract. No, they yeah. wouldn't. <laughs> <No>. Whosoever will. <laughs> I mean, this is astonishing. That's what I thought about, you know, when, when we come into temptation and want to sin, I would I sin against someone who's done that? But for me also, I have another reason. I don't want to be out of the ministry for doing some terrible thing somewhere. So that's a motivation for me in the midst of temptation. However, whether it's mental or out in the world of material things, I don't ever want to do something that would harm this relationship and take me out of it. So in the temptation, usually, when I say, I need to have a good reason that helps me, if I don't, I might yield more easily. But this is an amazing thing. And then he goes on, and here's where I had some difficulty in explaining my wife. And that is the, the relationship between the self And this came up, and the old self has been crucified in order that the body of sin be rendered ineffective, Romans 6, 6. We say the self belongs here. I was reading an article I had in my files by Hokema. He was a distinguished professor of theology at Calvin Seminary, a very bright guy. And he calls this the ego. The self. 
We have this ego and we have the spiritual ego. And these two egos are in conflict one with another. This is Romans 7. But in Romans 6 we were told, take a look at verse 11. In the same way count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. What is the self and the self-life? For the old man, the old self in 6.6 has been crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, my English text says, might be done away with and that you should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. What is the old self? Does the old self, here's the question that we have to solve. Is the old self something to do with myself as a human? That is, it's bound up with my human personhood in some way. Or is the self something other than that? How does Paul use the word self? And when we take self in terms of human, we easily come up with, you have a sinful nature. And I've often asked myself, is that really what Paul is saying? I have to be careful with this when I talk to people. What is this self that we struggle with? This inner tension between these two. Now I am a human. And I think we have lost the humanness of being a Christian. Well, there's the Christ life and there's the Adam life. That's living under the dominion of sin that guides any ideas how you define the self? No, I don't know if it's Ellen Maxwell in his book or not, but the Roman illustration of the condemned man who whose victim is strapped to him. You've heard this illustration, right? right that he can't get rid of it and eventually it kills him as well. Is I don't know if it's supported by scriptural yes and I remember one guy who came from England oh Major Ian Thomas huh, way to go Brain. I remember something and he used the illustration that you bought a pig he's trying to explain the sinful nature of the Christian and you wash him up you teach him how to read and write and take care at the table and do all these kinds of I mean he's a wonderful pig then one day, you accidentally left the door open, and out the pig goes, you see some money is piddling right into the middle. I can hear him say, home sweet home. <laughs> well, maybe. I have come to a little different conclusion, and you do not need to agree with me on this point at all. I think the self is the dysfunction or distortion of the human spirit that's within us. Now, the, the spirit is a part of who we are. But I want to say that that human spirit has lost its relationship with the divine spirit. And so the human spirit 
guides and directs me. So I do have a spirit, a human spirit, and that human spirit wants to be in connection with the divine spirit, which is God. And I can take the life of Jesus in the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, the Divine Spirit strengthened and supported the human spirit of Jesus. So that when temptations came and he knew what God wanted him to do, he followed God. Even though he experienced hardship and suffering in doing so. He knows what it's like. He doesn't have to know all kinds of things. He could steal a car, that was it. You don't need a lot of those kinds of things. His sin or his temptation was to be who he is, to manifest it independent of what God's will is for him. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And the human spirit, separated from the divine spirit, produces all kinds of distortions. That's why I see, I struggle with nature, because everywhere I see this defined, it comes out in terms of ethical and moral conduct, which describes the human over here apart from God. And there's all kinds, so the human spirit is that dimension within me, that gets transformed, and I now can see and think about God as significant to my life. Call it conversion. But I'm still tempted. And Paul says, the old man was crucified at the body of sin. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, it's the Greek word sarks, which can refer to our human physical existence in the world. Paul is using this word in a special way, even as John did of the term logos, which we translate as the word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. This word logos appeared in the classical religious writings as that word which holds all things together, brings them in, sustains them, and was an appropriate one to apply to Jesus. Sarks here for Paul is that life of conduct that comes here and ought not to be here. Sarks is the a pattern or a pattern or lifestyle exhibited by conduct. Is that the one that's translated old man or old, or self, old self? Well, it's one of the terms. It's not the flesh. The old man is this life. I mean, in our version, I think that's the one that's translated old self and then old self. Yes. Well, no, it's not translated. It's translated as old self in my translation. In the Greek text, it's this old man. An old person. And a number of scholars don't want to make it too personal. It means it in a broader sense. So he changes the word, the old person. My personhood is found in my human spirit, which differentiates me 
from the unregenerate man. That is very interesting, isn't it? You think about yeah. Christ in the garden who was struggling. Amazingly, amazing struggle between his will. So he's a sinless Christ, but he still had the desire that yeah. he had to put under God's desire. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really interesting. It stretches your mind, doesn't it? Yeah. To really. Seems see. like the temptation came from outside, though, didn't it? Like, you mean, you mean the original temptation? But he probably had a lot of temptation. The temptation was in his spirit, too. Well, it was directed. I don't think to say it's in the spirit. I'm just trying to say that the spirit. I believe at this that state until somebody convinces me otherwise. That the spirit is the the core of human existence. It is our way of the spirit. As one neurologist who I like, I'm not a neurologist, but who teaches as the head of neurology, neurological studies at UCLA, is fine Christian. It is a way of responding, a way of interacting, it's a way of engaging in relationships. So the spirit can be tempted to go back here and to do things and to act contrary to what they know. Spirit is our personal capacity to engage in relationships that are not totally bound by the conditionedness of our physical existence, so physical or neurological or mental conditions. When the Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, I mean, here's the mystery <laughs> that we can't really explain. What's going on here? But we know it's happening. <laughs> you sense it in your heart. Uh, sometimes, and we'll get to this in Romans 8 too, the Spirit, I'm struggling with how to understand what we mean by the Spirit. But the Spirit here is... Sometimes you know what you want to do, what you want to do, or you fall in love with someone. How do you know? Well, you just know it's there. Mm -hmm. You know, you know this person. Friendships are things, other things that you just know is the case. I looked and looked for a book that I have written by a young Pentecostal pastor, very well done, and I don't remember what, how he termed it. They said there are times in your life. When suddenly you sense God wants you to do something. It's not a totally rationally worked out thing, but you just feel that. I have a good pastoral friend who was at Meadow Creek. Uh, I can just remember his name. He's now pastoring. Are you friends? No. Tell about Dan. Dan. Dan Hedberg. He was telling me, sometimes I was, uh, he says, I want to tell you, one time I was at, and he has a very strong feeling of, healing and God working through it. He says, sometimes God says, do something. He says, right there in that church, I asked this lady if I could pray for her. Right? This is the point you were courageous in there. You know, because he sensed that this is what God was telling him to do. And so sometimes there's this, I guess I'll call it spiritual intuition is the closest I came so far. The spirit is that, apart from that, our spirit, if it's separated from the divine spirit, will go to that, and, it, and the body influences this because of our passions and all kinds of things. But the spirit is where we get trained. For example, I thought, you know, you meet someone and say, well, I've had this when I was flipping, and God said, well, 
I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. I mean, I'm, I'm religious, spiritual, not religious. Like, what in the world? He means, I don't want to have to work a lot. It's this kind of mystical thing. And, and spirituality has been transformed and distorted into all kinds of things in our day. There's physical spirituality, there's economic spirituality. I mean, there's a whole list of things. And Gordon Fee, in a little chapter in the book, that he's we need to bring spirit, the spirit back into spirituality. And that means this essence of me is a way of seeing and thinking. And when he writes in chapter five, 5, one of the benefits is hope that does not put us to, to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about this in the recent struggles in America with policemen shooting other people and how we respond. And then people come, what we need is love. And that's what God is. We have to come back to the Trinity sometime. When we talk about the Spirit, I'll pitch it in there. But really, love is a part of the way of seeing and thinking about others as God sees and thinks about us. To develop a disposition of love. And I think that's the Spirit. The Spirit, I think, connects Father and Son and the Spirit. And He does that by all of them are embraced by the divine love that is the Father Himself. Well, I didn't, oh, there's one other thing I'll let you go. I'm going to, there was one section that I did not touch upon when we did six. And that's 6.15 to the end, and that's on obedience. Okay? What is the place of obedience in the Christian life? So verse 15 picks up as Paul does with the question again, like he did in 6.1. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? For in 14 he says, Sin shall no longer be your master because you're no longer under the law but under grace. And he says, May it never be the case. And here he sets a principle. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, and it's interesting he puts obedience in the context of slavery. We know that Rome, at least some scholars have put about a third of Roman population was under some kind of slavery or bondage, either by choice or because they were captured in an army and brought and made slaves to other people, given the gifts that they had. Some people had gifts of taking care of households and they were put in as to whomever they were sold to. And so the first point that I see, don't you know that you who offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? And here, I won't pick it up, but he's not consistent, but that's because of a point. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or whether you are slaves to grace, but either, or here he says to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So he contrasts here obedience with uh, slaves. But thanks to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching that has now been claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So the first point I see in Paul here is that there is no there is, is no neutrality with reference to masters. Here, whatever your master is, if your master is law, as was the Jews, or is grace over here in Christ, here you would put it in terms of Christ. In terms of the metaphor of slavery, 
I take slavery here to be an unconditional, an unconditional deep commitment to Christ. For only here can you find victory over this. Now he'll talk about life in the Spirit in chapter 8, so it comes right in. So, be careful. Slavery implies obligation to a new master. Set in the context of slavery. And interestingly, slavery leads to freedom. Slavery for us is a tough word in our history, in our background. But for Paul, slavery could be a way or a means to have upper mobility. You could, by signing yourself to a good master, and you could gain freedom, you could gain all kinds of possibilities in that way. I'm trying to think of who, here's where my mind is giving me trouble. It's time for me to stop doing things. But there is a, oh, what's his name? Early classical writer who talks about a, a, a slave walking down the street and free men would step aside because of who his master was. And uh, so slavery was not always seen within our American context. You've got to take it within the Roman context that it goes. And obedience leads to holiness. The obedience is not the holiness. It is the fruit by which it comes. Look at chapter... Wait a minute. Oh, here's chapter 6. And he writes, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefits... Actually, the word is fruit, if you have it. The fruit you reap leads or results into holiness and eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He keeps on this all the time, this kind of dichotomy between the old life and the new life. Old patterns, new patterns. But those new patterns, give yourself to Christ, following Him. I don't know, but that's, what I get out of this, and I didn't mention it before. Romans 7, you all know. There are two dominant ways of seeing Romans 7 and interpreting it. In fact, it was interesting. Last Sunday, I stopped by, got myself a donut at the shop there, and, and uh, Don Wiggins and Pastor Paul were there, and he mentioned, oh, well, Don's teaching Romans. I had it done, da, da, da. And he says, I mean, we're just starting Romans 7 or finished Romans 7. And he's coming with, oh, do you see this as an unregenerate or non-Christian man? Apparently, Richardson, who taught them, before I taught them, taught them that Romans 7 is a struggle with the unregenerate person trying to keep the moral law of God and cannot do it. That's one view. Not a lot of people hold it, but there are many. Okay. And the second one is, it illustrates the conflict in the life of Christian between these two realms simultaneously. This is held by most of the early Reformed teachers and by many, many other teachers. We'll have to take a look at this another time. But what's, why do they take that and why do we have, what arguments are against it? Then the third way is, of course, my own which I've come to. I think Romans 7 is dealing with the Christian who re reverts back to the law in order to bring about his righteousness. It's this, as I've illustrated preaching sometimes, this little ladder. 
call it the Christian spiritual ladder. You're a sinner down here, you got saved and you start up this ladder to Christian, to Christian maturity, spiritual life, so forth. And you just put whatever you require them to do in those ladders. But if I look at Romans 7, flesh is mentioned only three times in the chapter, and usually in a general way. Law and sin, law and sin. It's kind of, my own opinion is, after dealing with obedience, and Paul having been a very stern, dedicated Pharisee, may have thought, you know, now that I'm in Christ, I can make this thing work. I'll be, I'll be a good Christian. Tell me what to do and I can do it. So he never struggles in himself. Because he'll say in Philippians 3, in relation to the law, blameless. Nice to think, really? <laughs> that's before he was a Christian. So that's hard to take it as, a, as an unregenerate man that he ever struggled with the law. He didn't. But when sin came up, law intensifies it. You thought you were doing pretty good for the week. Now look at what you did. You broke God's law. See, you're not so good after all. And the law is there to punish us and punish us. And so that's the way I take Romans 7. It's a conflict between, I think it's eight times he uses sin, and I, I wrote down how many times he uses law. Huh. And I see this as a conflict. Oh, yeah. I had to make sure I got done. Well, thank you, folks, for coming. If you see somebody, I'll still do Romans 8 next time more systematically. <laughs> and give you some handouts. Let me, let me read you something about this. This is my book. This is a, this as you go. Well, let me read it. Uh, Hyatt Moore of Wycliffe wrote a book entitled Faces uh, let me see. Oh, Images of God, Faces and Souls that Reflect Their Creator. And he goes into East Asia and makes pictures and drawings and there's little comments below. And this is his comment. There is a spirit within us and the spirit is the parent in every baby, every child, every old man, every old woman. It's not the essence of life that was first breathed into the human and has continued ever since. It's not the flesh that makes us who we are bone or brain or throbbing heart we are made in God's likeness yet he is hardly composed as we are the flesh will fade the heart will stop the blood that flows faithfully will cease its flowing but the spirit that is within that is something else again he doesn't explain it and so what do we mean by this spirit so when I was doing this I saw this and I man that's, that's just kind of what I want to say what is the spirit of well thank you all don't we erase this? Don't we erase this? Yes, please.